You're listening to an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. episode is brought to you by Youngstown Tile. For spectacular flooring, go bold, go local, go Youngstown Tile. And by River Rock at the Amp. Saturdays in the summertime, there's no other place to be than at the Amp in Warren. And before you go, stop by the Sunrise Inn for the best food in Warren. And by Rick Perillo, author of the new true crime thriller, There's More Bodies Out There. Available now on rickperillo.com. Welcome to the Vice Squad Pod. I'm your host, Vince Greary. Tonight's episode, Alvin Karpus's train robbery. When Alvin Karpus arrived in Ohio in early 1935, two steps ahead of the law, he found himself the last of a dying breed. It hadn't been long since bandits were crisscrossing Ohio and the Midwest, stealing guns from local armories and committing robberies wherever they could. John Dillinger robbed his first bank in Southwest Ohio, shot his way out of jail in Lima, and robbed many other banks throughout western Ohio before his crime spree ended in a hail of bullets outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago on a hot July night in 1934. Dillinger had just watched Manhattan Melodrama, a movie with William Powell and Clark Gable as two old friends who found themselves on opposite sides of the law. Carpus himself claimed to be watching the same movie that same evening in Cleveland, where he helped with security at the city's notorious Harvard Club an illegal gambling den. Following Dillinger's death, Pretty Boy Floyd became public enemy number one. He'd robbed banks and shot police officers in Northwest Ohio and escaped from a train on his way to the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus. He wanted in with us, Carpus recalled decades later, but there wasn't a chance. We had enough troubles of our own. Floyd swore he'd never be taken alive and he kept that vow meeting a violent end in a field in East Liverpool. He'd been on his way to Youngstown, which even then held a reputation as a wild town where criminals could hide in plain sight. Carpus was involved in multiple kidnappings and robberies throughout the Midwest as part of what became known as the Barker Carpus Gang. He'd met Fred Barker in prison in Kansas in the 1920s and had thrown in with Barker and his brothers. 
By the beginning of 1935, the Barkers were either dead or in prison, and Carpus was on the run. He and another gang member, Harry Campbell, eluded capture in Atlantic City after a shootout with police and ended up hiding out in Toledo in the welcoming arms of the women at a local brothel. Carpus's days as a criminal were numbered, but his last two major scores would be in Northeast Ohio. At the time, the Mahoning Valley was dotted with steel mills and factories with thousands of men tending to the assembly lines and open hearths and regularly getting paid for it. Carpus and Campbell enlisted the help of Freddie Hunter, a Warren native who had been in and out of prison and was an inveterate gambler. He suggested robbing a mail truck, but couldn't participate because he was well known to local authorities. On April 24, 1935, a train arrived at the Warren train station. On the station platform were Campbell and Joe Rich, a morphine addict affiliated with the local criminal element. Both were carrying pistols, conspicuously enough that they drew looks. Campbell got spooked, and he and Rich ran back to the car where Carpus was waiting. Do you realize that we're going to have to kill a lot of people to take this payroll? Campbell told Carpus. Meanwhile, more than $120,000 was being loaded off the train into a waiting mail truck. Carpus also drove off. He'd followed the truck's route and knew exactly where to cut it off on its way to the Warren Post Office. The mail truck stopped at a railroad crossing, and after starting back up, Carpus sprung. Campbell and Rich jumped out and hopped into the truck, taking it to a nearby garage, where they stole $72,000 in cash, 12000 of it in singles, and another $50,000 in bonds, which would turn up the next day in an Akron Creek. They each took $20,000, Hunter got $5,000 for suggesting the heist, and the rest of the ill-gotten gains covered their expenses. It was Carpus's first score since Freddie Barker had been killed, and it turned out to be the perfect crime. Burl Villers, the mail truck driver, identified the robbers as George Sargent and Tony Labrazetti, two associates in the Licavoli mob. Both were arrested almost immediately after the robbery. They were found guilty at trial and sentenced to 25 years in federal prison. Carpus said, I was beginning to think that the jails and prisons of North America were filling up with guys serving time for the jobs that I and the other Carpus Barker members had actually pulled. Carpus found himself flush with cash, but he still needed the action. I was aching for an exciting heist, he said in his autobiography. He was the best and he knew it, and he wanted to do something different. Visions of the Dalton gang danced in his head. I was going to take a mail train, he recalled. At 1.25 p.m. on November 7, 1935, Erie Railroad train 626 departed from Cleveland, laden with money from the city's U.S. Federal Reserve Bank. It was the payroll for the Republic Steel Mill in Warren. Carpus had spent weeks researching his target, and it looked like the train also contained payrolls for Youngstown Sheet and Tube and a Pittsburgh Steel Mill as well. It wouldn't be the equal of the $3 million the Newton boys stole from a train outside Chicago a decade earlier which remains to this day the most lucrative train robbery in American history. Sam Coker was supposed to watch the money get loaded onto the train from the Federal Reserve Bank downtown, but a social disease left him out of commission. The train pulled into the station in Garrettsville, a small town in Portage County most notable for being the hometown of President James Garfield's wife, Lucretia, at 2.15 p.m., two minutes late. Carpus and his Confederates were waiting nearby in a new Plymouth, 
bought two weeks earlier from a dealership on West 25th Street in Cleveland. The car loaded for bear with weapons, dynamite, and a full medical kit. Criminals at the time preferred Fords, which had recently started offering a new high-powered V8 that was so impressive that Clyde Barrow wrote a personal note of approval to Henry Ford himself. Carpus scoured Northeast Ohio looking for one for the job, but he had to settle for the Plymouth. Carpus and the four other men were armed to the teeth. With him, in addition to Harry Campbell, were Hunter, Ben Grayson, and John Brock. When Carpus announced the plans, it was Grayson who said, who the hell in this day and age robs a train? As smoke and steam from the train enveloped the platform, the men got into their assigned places. All told, there were about 20 people on the train platform. Grayson, wearing a comical disguise that included a long, droopy mustache, ordered engineer Charles Schull and fireman P.O. Lushner out of the cab of the locomotive, keeping them close enough to it that nobody thought anything untoward was happening. Another accomplice, believed to be Brock, went to the freight office window at the station and ordered its occupants out. Carl Clutter, telephone lineman for the Erie Railroad, complied, but station agent W.B. Moses barricaded himself in the office. Carpus, carrying a machine gun under his top coat and some sticks of dynamite, ordered the clerks in the mail car, where the bounty was held, to put their hands up. They dove back into the mail car. While Carpus was occupied and Hunter was running down the track, two people tried to drive away. Carpus stopped the potential escape, jumping on the car's running board and pulling the keys from the ignition, and went back to the mail car. He threw an unlit stick of dynamite in, saying the next one would be lit and ultimately three mail clerks came forward. Carpus took the senior clerk into the mail car. He refused to help. You know and I know there's another train coming down the line in a few minutes, Carpus told him. If you don't tell me what I want to know in a hurry, that train is going to run right into this one and there'll be a lot of dead people. I don't care about that, but you might. The clerk handed Carpus the Warren payroll. Now I want the payroll for Youngstown, Carpus asked. It had been delivered the day before. Fearing for his life, the clerk even showed Carpus's ledger to prove it. He wasn't lying and I was madder than ever, Carpus recalled. Carpus took several sacks of registered letters in the hopes of getting lucky, and everyone piled into the Plymouth to take off. Although there was a flurry of action on the station platform, he said none of the passengers on the train had any idea what had just transpired. He was wrong. A woman ran across the tracks from the train to the coal yard office. The marshal had been notified, but they would have to come from Ravenna. Authorities already suspected Carpus was in Ohio, but no immediate connection was made to him following the robbery. In fact, a home on East 55th Street near Huff Avenue in Cleveland was raided later that day with the thought that the robbers were there. But by then, Carpus was already traversing the back roads of northern Ohio. He meticulously planned his getaway route, taking a gravel road to what was then designated Ohio Route 80, catching Route 88 near Ravenna, and traveling a circuitous route to Port Clinton, where a plane awaited him at a local airport. The same airport, in fact, that Frank Sheeran claimed to fly out of 40 years later on his way to Detroit to kill Jimmy Hoffa. Carpus was making a clean getaway, even if he was a little lighter than he'd expected. The haul was around $46,000, with $34,000 of it in cash. An impressive sum, but he'd expected more. 
I told myself there would be plenty of other scores, Carpus said in his autobiography. And besides, I'd accomplished what I'd set out to do. I'd held up a train in the fine style just like the famous old western bandits. Campbell returned to Toledo, and a pilot named John Zetzer flew Carpus and Hunter out of Ohio. Carpus' robbery was a throwback to the previous century, but his escape was state-of-the-art. Two days later, they'd landed in Hot Springs, Arkansas, a resort known for its hospitality toward gangsters and other criminals. Zetzer, who'd smuggled whiskey from Canada during Prohibition, was given specific instructions and an extra $500 to dispose of the car. The Plymouth ended up in pieces at the bottom of Lake Erie. As it turned out, there would be no other scores for Carpus. Not only was J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI pursuing him, but the postal inspectors from Youngstown wanted him for stealing mail in the train robbery. It would be years before Carpus would become known as the man who robbed the mail truck in Warren, and only then because he confessed while in prison, leading President Franklin Roosevelt to pardon Sergeant and Labrazetti. Postal inspectors caught up to Hunter's girlfriend. An agent took her to the bar with the intention of getting her drunk and chatty. She saw right through it, dumping her drinks under the table and letting him get drunk and tell her the plan. Hoover especially needed to capture Carpus, and not only because he was the latest public enemy number one. Hoover was a paper pusher who'd taken over the Bureau of Investigation when its agents weren't even permitted to carry guns. He hadn't been at the scene when Dillinger or Floyd were killed and needed to show he was more than a desk jockey. Also, an arrest of Carpus would help grease the skids for more federal funding. Hoover fired up a public relations machine, alleging that Carpus had sent him death threats. This was strictly bullshit, Carpus said in his autobiography. Hoover blamed crooked politicians for Carpus still being at large. This probably had more than a kernel of truth. Carpus' services at the Harvard Club had gained him some friends in high places. On May 1, 1936, the FBI caught up with Carpus and Hunter in New Orleans. Hoover, who'd taken over the Bureau of Investigation more than a decade earlier and turned it into a feared law enforcement agency, as much through public relations as through training and diligence, made the trip personally to arrest Carpus. No fewer than 18 FBI agents were on the scene in New Orleans. They watched Hunter and Carpus get into a Plymouth coupe parked on Canal Street and instantly descended upon them. Carpus and Hunter gave themselves up, a surprise to federal agents. Carpus, like pretty boy Floyd, often boasted he'd never be taken alive. This posed a problem for agents. No doubt anticipating a shootout, none of them had brought handcuffs. Ultimately, Agent Buck Buchanan removed his necktie, which was used to bind Carpus's wrists. Hoover, Carpus said, waited until he was told the coast was clear. Then he came out to reap the glory. Six days later, Hoover flew to Toledo and arrested Campbell, also without incident. Campbell and Carpus were taken to St. Paul, Minnesota to stand trial for a pair of kidnappings. Ultimately, Carpus pleaded guilty to conspiracy to kidnap St. Paul banker Edward Bremer and was sentenced to life in prison. He would have only received 40 years had he been convicted in the Garrettsville robbery. Carpus started his federal prison sentence at Leavenworth, where his cell was across from a strange man who spent his time naked and tending to dozens of canaries in his cell. It was Robert Stroud, the famed Birdman of Alcatraz. Both Stroud and Carpus ended up at the prison on a windswept island in San Francisco Bay, which quickly became home to the most notorious and irredeemable criminals in the United States. Al Capone, 
another vacationer in Hot Springs, was incarcerated there, as was Machine Gun Kelly, Doc Barker, and Carpus's former accomplice Fred Hunter, who was convicted on federal charges related to the Garrettsville robbery. Carpus himself filed a motion for a trial related to the Garrettsville robbery, saying he'd been denied his constitutional right to a speedy trial. On April 14, 1941, Hunter and three other inmates attempted to escape with Harold Brest, James Borman, and Floyd Hamilton, formerly a member of Clyde Barrow's gang. Borman was wounded while trying to swim away from the island. His body was never found. The other three men were recaptured. Carpus worked in the kitchen at Alcatraz, where he was described as a diligent worker, but a bad influence on other prisoners. He spent time in and out of solitary confinement and took up the guitar, becoming good enough to play in the prison band, known sardonically as the Rock Islanders. The standard stint for a prisoner at Alcatraz was around five years. Carpus spent 26 there, the longest tenure of any prisoner on the Rock. He finally left Alcatraz in 1962, less than a year before it was officially decommissioned as a prison. First eligible for parole in 1951, he declined to ask, knowing that it wouldn't be approved. Fred Hunter was released from Alcatraz in 1953. He returned to Northeast Ohio, living variously in Diamond and Levittsburg, and worked on the new Ohio Turnpike outside Youngstown. He was the last living member of the Carpus Gang when he died on November 11, 1982. Since arresting Carpus in 1936, J. Edgar Hoover continued to consolidate his power, solidifying his reputation as the nation's top lawman. The FBI had turned its attention away from criminals as war loomed to the threat of Nazi saboteurs. Following the end of World War II, it was one of the domestic forces marshaled to fight communism and potential fifth colonists. Hoover personally advocated against any consideration for Carpus's release. Ultimately, Carpus was transferred from Alcatraz to McNeil Island, where he met the son of a prostitute that had been in and out of orphanages, juvenile homes, and prison for almost all of his 21 years. It was Charles Manson. Manson asked Carpus to teach him to play guitar. Carpus recalled in his autobiography that he didn't think he'd follow through, but Manson proved to be a quick study. He wanted to be a famous musician. Carpus couldn't or wouldn't help him with that. Finally, in 1969, Carpus was paroled with the intention that he be deported back to his native Canada. Carpus went on to write an autobiography, The Alvin Carpus Story, released in 1971. Another memoir, On the Rock, would be released posthumously in 1980. Plans were made to turn his autobiography into a movie, The Last Public Enemy, written by Henry Hecht, who had produced the movie based on Robert Stroud's life and directed by John Frankenheimer. But those plans came to a halt with Carpus's death in 1979. By then, he'd relocated to Spain, where he was treated as a celebrity. Carpus had outlived his old foe by seven years. J. Edgar Hoover had made his reputation as America's top cop, and the full extent of his abuses of power would not be realized until years later. Following his death, Hoover laid in state at the U.S. Capitol, the only civil servant so honored and Chief Justice Warren Burger gave his eulogy. I made Hoover's reputation as a fearless lawman, Carpus said at the end of his autobiography. It's a reputation he doesn't deserve. I have nothing but contempt for J. Edgar Hoover. For the rest, there are no apologies, no regrets, 
no sorrows, and no animosity. What happened, happened. The sources for tonight's story were Murder and Mayhem on Ohio's Rails by Jane Ann Truzillo, The Hunt for the Last Public Enemy in Northeastern Ohio by Julie Thompson, The Alvin Karpus Story by Alvin Karpus, and newspaper records from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Youngstown Vindicator, and the East Liverpool Review. That was an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. To watch with video, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash amazingpodcastcompany. For more, visit our website at www.amazingpodco.com. If you enjoyed the show, please click the like and subscribe buttons and share it with your friends. It goes a long way in helping us produce more amazing content.